It's dangerous to be a young woman today, so I do track my daughter's iPhone everywhere she goes. She has to keep it on always when she leaves the house. It's important I know where she is in case something bad were to happen or if she were to make a bad decision. Once we caught her in a lie and were able to stop her from going to a party where there was underage alcohol consumption. I care a lot about my child's friends and I'm a big part of the friend-making process. If my kid wants to be friends with someone, he has to tell me first. And then I go to the family's house and meet the family and of course the child. You know how influential friends can be. And I want my son to have little bad influences in life. My senior year of high school, my parents took my phone and read through all my text messages. While they had the phone, they made me feel bad about losing it. They found out that I had tried alcohol twice and had been hooking up with a guy. They found out some of my friends were getting fake IDs. Important to note that I had declined the offer. I was grounded for four months and not allowed to continue being friends with those who I had texted about drinking and those who were getting fake IDs. My parents forbid me to continue seeing the boy I was seeing. I remember I would be scared to tell my mom about anything unpleasant that happened in my day because she would do everything in her power to try and fix it. Sounds caring, but I can tell you it wasn't usually a good thing. Like for example, if so-and-so had said something that made me upset, she would literally call the parents and demand the child be reprimanded, which would only lead to more bullying at school. Or if I was upset about grades or homework or a teacher, she would email, call the teacher, demand that they let me redo the test or homework I was upset about. I wanted to try and handle things myself, but she wouldn't let me. In this culture, in, in, in the United States in particular, and this has been written about recently in many places, but it's this idea that you can never leave your child alone and you, can, you always have to be sort of on the lookout. I do think that social economic status, both in terms of overall wealth and to some extent ethnicity, do play a role in increasing the chances that kids will experience helicopter parenting, especially if you're in a high-income family with one earner and a stay-at-home parent whose job effectively is raising the kid or the kids, then I do think that sometimes there are families where the parents treat parenting almost like it's a business and they're CEO of their child's life. You are now tuned in to the Unwind the Line podcast from Red Feather Studios. <laughs> I'm your host, Ali Pham, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Aviv Rao. Hi! And Justin Campos. Hey. And we got a special guest co-host for you today. Hi, my name is Nikhil, and I'm a junior at Wesley. Hell yeah. He has some great experience and insight into mm. today's episode topic, which is... Helicopter parenting. Definitely something we see a lot as something I've also been reading about a lot is the connection between this high pressure environment Mm. and an increased student anxiety and inability to handle certain situations when they're more independent because Mm -hmm. the parents have been so, so, so controlling. Yeah, I think you guys all were interested in looking at like the different levels of nuance as mm-hmm. far as 
yeah. immigrant component, maybe yes. ethnic component, mm-hmm, and exactly. also the socioeconomic stuff. Because I think all those things play a role. I think there's like the yeah, kind of typical upper middle class white mm-hmm. helicopter mm-hmm. parent that's pushing their kids yeah. to do 17 sports. Right. And yeah. then there's also really nuancing like race and class dynamics. Yeah. And I think the whole mm-hmm. positivist immigrant assimilation through getting a good education uh-huh. and the American dream plays a role in parenting. Yeah. And also, um, yeah, it's in my experience, I've noticed that it's a dynamic that very much pervades white wasp circles but Mm -hmm. has historically been a thing that has been weaponized and targeted against other parents and so other parents are either seen as like not good enough or like tiger moms and like helicopter parents in a racially coded way and in an ethnically and religiously coded way such that the only good parent is a white parent in Mm -hmm. our social understanding yeah and like a rich white parent yeah i was listening to another podcast about this and also then about how the idea that black parents are negligent Mm -hmm. parents can be tied back into the ideology at slave auctions Mm -hmm. of a sort of like really fucked up moral justification for pulling children apart from parents Mm -hmm. because it was like if these parents aren't good parents anyway then like it doesn't really matter if we do this Mm -hmm. which i think definitely that has pervaded yeah like parenting stereotypes today yeah yeah so we've got some really cool guests on this show who hopefully are going to provide as nuanced of a picture of this as we can give you in like an hour yeah um (laughs) so get stoked you're not gonna Mm -hmm. have to listen to us that much you're gonna get to listen to our super cool array of guests Mm -hmm. who are all uniquely qualified and have different positions from which they're coming at this issue and we're really excited to have them on our round of guests is our favorite roundtable discussion between three um, <laughs> teachers from where I grew up. So a preschool teacher, my fourth grade teacher, mm-hmm. both of whom are named Christine, fun fact, wow. and my um, high school guidance counselor. And then our next guest, Nikhil, do you want to talk a, a tiny bit about Julie? Yes. Yeah, so Julie is an author. She's the former <laughs> dean of freshmen at Stanford, and she you know, had some really interesting experiences there that she chose to write a book about and that kind of spiraled and snowballed into its own chapter um, during which you know she and I came into contact through some work on a documentary but we really were brought together by kind of the unique environment created around the Silicon Valley area with some of the high-pressure public schools, into which obviously helicopter par- parenting entered. Definitely, yeah. And then our last guest is our friend Melissa, who provides some really powerful insight into Mm -hmm. what it was like growing up um, as Turkish, but in American culture Mm -hmm. and how Turkish culture and American culture often clashed. Really, really powerful. So yeah, here we are with our first guest, the roundtable discussion. Hi, I'm Christine, and I've been working for almost 30 years now with children ages 3 to 6. I co-own a farm and forest kindergarten in the German sense of kindergarten, ages 3 to 6, and we're outside all the time on a farm. Um, We have a yurt for our building if it's really inclement weather, but it's basically child-led and teacher-facilitated. My name is also Christine, and I actually work with elementary school kids, um, primarily in the fourth grade for approximately the past 12 years. And I'm Rob. I'm a high school guidance counselor, and this is um, starting my seventh year. Before that, I worked in college admissions for a few years. All right, so something that I've been wondering is how often you all deal with 
the parents of your students? I know especially with like younger kids, there are parent-teacher conferences. I think the preschool age is rather unique because I expect to talk to parents frequently. So it's really a daily thing. And I would say at the elementary level, so we do have parent-teacher conferences. Uh, we have open house, so parents can kind of come in and get to check me out type of thing. Um, it, usually it's one to two parents out of a class of 20 where I feel like I'm talking to them maybe on a weekly basis. And usually that's because there's concern, whether it's academic or social or emotional. Yeah, and I would say probably a ratio-wise, very similar at the high school. You know, we work with students for all four years of high school, and there are some parents that I probably interact with maybe once or twice total. Then there's also the cohort where I feel like I'm interacting with their parents every other day, but it's typically those students who might need a little bit more interaction or um, have higher needs for one reason or another. Whether it's an every other day need is, you know, one thing, but, you know, there's definitely a big, a big range. I had not considered that, right? That for Rob, you're you're looking at kids like four years, right? Mm-hmm. So for me as an elementary teacher, I if I have that relationship with the family um, because of, of having a, an older sibling, that's yeah. one thing, but I have them for a year and then mm-hmm. they move on. Yeah, but you're with them like every day for a year. That's and, true. And Rob right. sees them, you know, like we would meet like what? When I was there, like yeah. once every few months or yeah. so to check in. Pretty much, is that yeah. how it works? Like once, and, and typically, we try to meet with every student a handful of times throughout the year. We've also, I think, since you've been here, mm-hmm. um, we have instituted guidance seminars as well. So we meet oh. with uh, all the students for one term of the year, once per cycle. So on our, you know, oh. weekly or, or week and a half or so uh, basis. So we get to see the students a little bit more than we used to, which I love. But yeah, it's it's not, definitely not an everyday sort of a thing. Like the teachers oh. get to know the students a lot better in that one year period. But I think that. It's nice to get to see them grow over four yeah, years, too. It's a lot yeah. of fun. And I have something similar to Rob, because in my school, I can get kids at three, and then I might have them until they're six. So I would have that same luxury of getting to know them better oh. over a few years. And then, so I'm interested specifically in, in helicopter parents. So do you feel like you all deal with that? Maybe what are the nature of these interactions? Are they like emails, phone calls, visits? I would say for for elementary school, it, usually it starts with an email nowadays, right? Because mm-hmm. I, it's they know it's the quickest way to get to me. But I usually then follow up with a phone call. I think, in, especially when you have a helicopter parent who's that usually stems from anxiety, mm-hmm. either their own anxiety, um, which is many times the case. But yeah. At least over the phone, you can have that conversation. You can read a tone better. You can adjust if you realize that the conversation's going in a direction that you didn't anticipate it going. Um, I think over email, it just it's so easy to misconstrue. And many times that email is a one-sided conversation, mm-hmm. right, back mm-hmm. and forth. And I, I feel like what I said with this unique population of preschool, I'm going to have these talks more often. However, there are a few who are going to be the ones that need more support. And so I've even been getting text messages. So it's gone from email. Yeah. So I've been getting some text messages and I've had to really hold those healthy boundaries to say, I'm at home now. And I think at the high school level, it's sort of all of the above. You know, I think there's emails throughout the day. I do think that sort of in a guidance counselor role, I'm not necessarily, I'm not teaching kids all day long, so I do have a little bit more flexibility mm-hmm. in my schedule for meetings. So I do think I have a, I have more parent meetings than most of the teachers would. And I find that to be helpful too. I, I 
and we do phone conversations too. I don't love the phone. I feel like I'm on the cusp of being a millennial and none of us like phones. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think to me, a lot of it is, is the interactions with people and being able to see their faces. So I actually mm-hmm. prefer meetings as long as that can work in everyone's schedule. And if it can't, a phone conversation is great. And for quick questions, email is helpful too. But I think with, especially with the helicopter population, mm-hmm. it ends up being all three. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a matter of degree, too. Like, not all of my parents are texting me. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our society, too, and this is my opinion, is just is really proliferating this feeling that all children have to be successful and the parents yeah. are the ones that have to be there driving this. So I find my role being one of, you know, calming giving parents information, letting them know that it's okay to be involved and it's okay to to be questioning, but let's take a breath and we'll talk about this mm-hmm. another time. I'm also interested in hearing like what you would define as like a helicopter parent versus a parent who's healthily involved in their child's education. And I'm also really interested, like you all work with different age groups. What does helicopter parenting look like for someone of three-year-olds versus, you know, a fourth grader? And I... I can imagine it much more with a a kid going into college where the parents like very invested in where the child's going into. Where is the line for a helicopter parent versus an involved parent? So that kind of goes back to what I just said about being a matter of degree. Um, I think with the unique outdoor school that I have right now, I'm attracting the opposite of helicopter parents. Mm -hmm. But from my experience in the past at traditional preschools, those tendencies of being a helicopter parent were about directing every moment of that child's life and over scheduling. And I just saw so many parents that were in a panic about, are they doing enough instead of just sitting back Mm -hmm. and letting those kids be. Yeah. That feels play. crazy at like yeah. age three or four. I, I mean, they're already, they they're already figuring out what college they're going to at yeah. age three. And I would be like, no, let them play. <laughs> yeah. And I think for, for elementary school, a big piece of it is letting them fail. And I think that when a parent and when a parent sees their child struggling or failing, they see that as them failing mm-hmm. for a helicopter Absolutely. parent. And even for any parent. I mean, having kids of my own, I feel like I, I feel that same need of I feel myself pulling back. Like, it's okay for them to fail. That's the way they're going to learn. And so that healthy interaction might be, I'm noticing my child struggling. Do you think this is normal? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there something different I should do at home? Mm -hmm. Versus your helicopter parent is, my kid's struggling. What what are you doing wrong? Mm -hmm. What am I doing wrong? Like, how do we fix it right now? And a lot of times it's around social things where it's like, they need to figure that out. They're mm-hmm. mad at their best friend because of whatever happened. They need to fix that. Yeah. If you keep fixing it, they'll right. go off to college not being able to manage basic interactions because yeah, mom and dad absolutely. aren't there to fix that in the moment. So it's in, in my mind, especially in elementary, you got to start to let them fail. Going back onto what you said, um, and being a parent as well, trusting your children. They can do more than you think yeah. they can. And it's really hard sometimes. You have to curl your toes and just let them make that mistake. So I think at the high school level, it's it's very similar in, in, in making sure that the students feel like they have agency. You know, And I think mm-hmm. that one of the big yeah. things that I often do with parents is, one, help to convince them that they can trust their kid at this point. You know, they're not... You know, probably even when they were three, they could trust them to do three-year-old sorts right. of yes. things. But at this point, you know, they're on their way to being adults. And yeah. if, if your plan for them and their plan for themselves, more importantly, is to go off and be independent in a few years, and you need to start letting them do their own. My next question is, do you notice 
oh, this kid has a helicopter parent. If you notice those kids are anxious or like don't know how to handle social situations. And I actually tossed this question to Mr. Kaplan over email and who sadly couldn't make it to the discussion today. He sent me a great audio response to it. So here it is. And I'd love to see how you respond to what he has to say. I do think overall in the time that I've been teaching, um, students are more apprehensive about taking exams and needing reassurance for everything. In a way, it's nice that they're not argumentative sometimes, but they're almost co too compliant. They're almost obsequious about you know asking to use a paper clip or um, <laughs> touch the pencils on my desk or something like this. It's almost like they're so used to being micromanaged on everything they do that I'm not sure what's gonna happen when they have to live independently I definitely see children being more anxious, even in the preschool level. They're um, even afraid to build a block tower because it might be the wrong way or it's not going to balance the right way. They don't want to go and just freely explore because it's not going to be right, whatever that means to them. There was a lot more anxiety over the years. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think that you used to have one student maybe who was really anxious and so you could kind of focus on that. I find myself pointing out my mistakes a lot in an effort to help alleviate some of the anxiety about it not being perfect. But I think when kids are so overscheduled and everybody swoops in to fix problems, you don't feel like you have control over who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that rapidly then starts to impact your feeling that you can manage picking up a pencil yeah. or making the choice to put a paper clip or a yeah. staple. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of times like my pencil's broken and they sit there and look at me and I say, well, what would you like me to, to, to do? Mm. And like, do you think you could fix this on your own? And sometimes mm. you have kids who are like, I, I don't like, what do I do? And yeah. I think, mm -hmm. okay, so that's where we are with that particular child yeah. is helping mm -hmm. to empower them that you actually can make choices. And I often see um, students these the particular students of helicopter parents sort of at the high school age having some sort of insight about how this is not what I want it to be and perhaps I've been you know playing these 12 sports forever because my parents are are having me do it and they have this realization but then they're afraid to disappoint yep. so it comes right. it becomes this emotional thing where like I don't want to tell my mom or dad that I don't want to do this because I've always done it and I think they'll get mad at me or I think yeah. they'll be upset with me or you know maybe they're right and maybe these are the right things to do. It's not just how do I fix a pencil, it's like and now I'm just sort of strawed about it and that can be really tricky to, to work with the students on. Yeah, I know I've been reading some studies and a lot of them have linked helicopter parenting to like anxiety and this lack of ability to problem solve yeah, when you're living independently. And I also just, I'm thinking there's so many anxious students where I go to college and I, I wonder if that trend has increased and if that's a result of the fact that so many of these students have been, you know, helicopter parented and just are so anxious. A few years ago, I also heard the term snowplow parents. So you think of the helicopter oh. parent as always sort of hovering around, yeah. but then there's this idea that the snowplow parent is plowing all of the challenges away yeah. from the student. And I liked, I liked that visual too, sort of the idea that anything difficult that's going to be in the way, get out of the way so my kid can have the smoothest pass forward, which I get emotionally. Like, sure, of course, yeah. as a parent, I'm sure you, yep. you want that for your kid, but then they're not developing that resilience. They're not learning how to cope with even minor problems. Yeah, I remember I had one friend and we had one really hard grade as a teacher for papers and the parent just decided, oh, this teacher is an unfair grader, so I'm gonna write my kids papers. 
I've gotten like, I've gotten parents to even in fourth grade email to change grades, and where I am currently, we don't do like letter grade one two, one two three three four, four right yeah. and a four doesn't equate to an a although that's what most parents do and so it, it was kind of like but she worked really hard yeah. and it was like yes and I acknowledge she did she worked really hard but in the end the skill set still landed her here and so we can acknowledge that she worked really hard but but we're not changing the grade because you don't like that it doesn't match her effort her effort grade was a four right so sometimes it's also educating a parent right. and, and, and this parent did not like that most of them don't mm. but I feel like that's a piece of it as well and that's the message they're sending their child too yeah. if you don't like the result then let's just call somebody and have it changed yeah and that's not the way the world works and yeah. so I feel like the best intent but they're they're actually doing damage. I agree. They don't realize that that's actually undermining what they really want for their child because everyone wants their child to be successful, but you can't do that for them. There has to be an intrinsic motivation yeah. to become who you're supposed to become, and you're taking all of that away if you just do it or you mm-hmm. snowplow, as you said, yeah. Rob, or guide every single thing that they're doing. I remember being at school and everyone was so stressed out about grades. It was like almost everyone was comparing after exams and just this massive stress before every exam. I'm wondering, Mr. Williamson, how you see that play out and like if you have kids come talk to you about that. I think constantly. I mean, the the students here really do feel a lot of pressure. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do over the past few years is look at that and think about why is that happening and what can we do sort of in our own part of the equation to alleviate that. So we've brought a couple programs to the high school to try to work with that. We've worked with teachers around the amount of homework they give and Mm -hmm. is there any way to, to reduce that. It's tough when some of the pressure is coming from the students themselves to each other, yeah. like comparing grades. Nobody, no teacher sits there and says, now compare your grade to yeah. your neighbor. Right. Yeah. But that sort of just happens. Yeah. And, you know, some of it comes from the parents and a lot comes from, from society. Yeah. Just, you know, it's this big rat race that everyone feels like, you know, you need to go to the best college you can possibly go to so that right. you can go to the best job you can possibly go to so that you can make money. And, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of pressure. And I think there's a lot of studies that have shown that this generation coming up now is probably the first generation that's not going to surpass their parents in terms of their overall like economic stability and well-being and while I don't necessarily think that the freshman sitting in bio is thinking about that that all trickles down and I think that that becomes really stressful because it trickles down to the parents thinking okay I need to give my kid a leg up and therefore they need to be playing these three sports and being in the play and be getting all A's in their honors and AP classes and you know to get into to get into school X whatever that school X is and as much as we try to say that that's the exact opposite of what is probably the healthy and more fun way to live your life and instead, you know, maybe let your student live your life and then we'll see what college best fits with who they actually are authentically. Mm -hmm. Um, And some parents totally get that and, you know, you'll say that once and they will completely understand and it will like in some ways be like this like (laughs) life-changing, you know, paragraph that I've just spewed at them. Um, and then others politely disagree and say, you know, nope, we're going to go to this school and, and use, you know, first person plural, we are going to apply to this yeah. school and we are going to, you know, you know, and that's typically when I try to stop them and say, okay, we are not doing anything, but, yeah. you know, and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not, but yeah. we do what we can. Yeah. That societal pressure, um, you know, coming from the parents, I think it's bigger, and especially in this New England area. And I, you know, like I said, I have seen that from the preschool age where it's already set. This is where my child's going. They're three. Yeah. 
but we also have this idea of one size fits all. There's one mm. educational plan for every child, every student. And that, I think, puts us in a lot of danger for many things. Yeah. Every child's different. And we have to start that conversation, too. All right, so we're at our last question now. So several of you are parents yourselves and have your experiences dealing with other children and children's parents influenced how you parent or like made you reconsider things? Or do you think you've grown as a parent because of your experience as a teacher? Yes. A big fat yes. <laughs> um, I think there are times that I'm harder on my kids because I see certain things and certain tendencies. Um, and I always, my husband's always like, he's too young to understand that. And my response back is, I don't want to miss the boat. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'd rather start now by saying, you know, you need to learn to follow directions so that when he is able to get it, that that he understands it and we're not hitting fourth grade coming in thinking the world revolves around me and I just kind of do what I want and don't need to worry about what's being asked of me. On the flip side though I think there are other times I've backed way off especially in terms of like um, things outside of school that we only need to do one or two and that was a big decision this year for um, my daughter is you know you can't do everything so like let's pick what what makes you most excited what makes you feel when I look at her in the different things that she does where does she look radiant Mm -hmm. where does she physically look excited Mm -hmm. and that's what we went with and so I did panic a little that like we're not doing dance anymore and we're not doing this anymore and you know should I put her in soccer everybody does soccer why aren't we doing soccer but she's not a soccer kid so why are we going to push to do soccer so I do think that my my education background and being a teacher has definitely made me push harder in some areas and back off in others. I can totally relate to that. Um, I was an educator before I was a parent, so becoming Mm. a parent, I then got this amazing eye-opener for all of the parents of the children that were in my class. So I parented, um, you know, along with my husband, we were very, I don't know, maybe considered old-fashioned. Like, we really were not on top of our kids. Mm. We let them go around our neighborhood and knock on the door and Mm -hmm. say, can you come out and play? And I got a lot of phone calls. Do you know that your son is at our front door asking to play? You should call for a play date. And I said, we're neighbors. Oh my gosh. I learned a lot about other parenting styles that made me question. Yeah, I'm I'm not a parent at this point, but I, I definitely can relate to that idea that watching, you know, students and their parents, and actually a lot of my colleagues too, um, who are parents, and and seeing the things that I really admire in the kids, and then also seeing the parents and, mm-hmm. and how a lot of that trickles down, you know, yeah. and I think that, you know, the more frantic the parent, the more frantic the kid ends up being in a lot of cases, yeah. and, um, and how it's really made me think about, you know, when I do become a parent, which I, I hope to do, how I want to work with my kid and, and, and help them to grow and learn rather than being everything and anything that they need because they can be themselves too. Yeah, and I think something that the, the teachers all get at that I'm really curious about too with this issue is like unwinding the line haha, of how much of it is like social and how much of it is familial and yeah. that seems to be something that they kind of wrestle with and go back and forth on mm-hmm. and it's something that I think we've gone back and forth on like how much of this is parents internalizing a social structure and how much of it is like a social structure pushing students and parents and teachers all kind of yeah. in the same direction yeah. and how much of it is like parents own ideas of worth 
and those coming out on their kids and Mm -hmm. like I'm interested to hear your experience, Nico, because you went to a high school that was really high pressure. Yeah, I mean, academically. I I think as far as the dynamics, these are things that are shared across high schools. I definitely went to one of the Mm -hmm. edge cases in terms of the volume of pressure. The interesting thing about, you know, the familial versus the societal um, Mm -hmm. is that everyone, when you're going to like a big public school like the one that I went to, everyone is kind of coming in with a different set of expectations and a different set of norms, depending on whether, you know, they come from a large affluent family or a more um, working class family or one that is mm-hmm. more immigrant valued and you know what kind of immigrant value yeah they're, they're all exactly. they're all quite different and a lot of those tensions were some you know things that we as high schoolers internalized but also it just contributes to an overall you know stressful environment yeah and that, was, that was something i definitely was able to unpack in retrospect more mm-hmm. rather than while i was in the thick of it and yeah, so part part of that was why I decided to sit down with Dean Julie, Julia Lithgow Hames, mm-hmm. as you know, someone who's been a mentor to me, someone that I've kind of discussed some of these hard issues mm-hmm. with in the past. Um, we've worked together on a documentary project that was you know recently mm-hmm. released, and, you know, won a director's award. It's <laughs> called The Edge of Success. You can nice. check that out. Mm-hmm. It's a shameless plug. A lot <laughs> of that involved retrospectively unpacking, you know, the, the complex dynamics of a stressful, in this case, stressful large public high school mm-hmm. in a dynamic like Palo Alto of yeah. all places. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. All right. So, oh, do you want to talk a teeny bit about Julie's book? Yeah. So, um, Julie, we bring her on. yeah. So Julie is, you know, a two-time at this point in time a two-time best-selling author. Her most recent book was about her own experience as a biracial woman, kind of growing up and going through all of the trials that she faced. Mm-hmm. You know, as as a woman, as a woman of color, and presently, you know, as a mother. Before that, kind of the more relevant book was called How to Raise an Adult. Mm-hmm. And she wrote that after um, a number of years working as the dean of freshmen at Stanford, where she Dang. noticed <laughs> um, kind of some recurring themes and recurring trends oh. with students and mm-hmm. students with certain types of relationships with their parents, yeah. students who didn't necessarily always come out with the best coping mechanisms, with mm-hmm. the best kind of self-motivating mechanisms. And these kind of repeated encounters mm-hmm. sparked this curiosity within her that kind yeah. of led, that led her to pursue this you know, av- avenue of inquiry. All right, so here she is. Yep. My stories and observations came from the Stanford community. This was by no means a problem unique to Stanford. Those of us who were serving in roles as administrators, as advisors, as faculty, as deans on college campuses around the country began noticing in the last decade, hey, something has changed. College students are showing up with a different set of skills. Their parents are doing a lot more for them. We were all taking notice and we were all trying to figure out what has changed. Is it just a blip? Is it a trend? Is it a is it a shift? Are young people really coming with different skills? Or should we be worried? And so I happened to write a book and- Sure. So you, you were the Dean of Freshmen, correct? I was. So mm-hmm. did you see that any of those students were able to sort these um, symptoms and problems that you observed out for themselves as college progressed? Yes. And what I would say is not all of my students behave this way. It was really a case of more and more students over the decade I was dean seemed to be quite comfortable relying on their parents to handle the tough issues for them, whether it was a concern over a grade or 
the, you know, the parents were going to make the choice about what the student was going to do for the summer or where the student was going to study abroad. So more and more students were more and more reliant on their parents. But the students who weren't reliant on their parents were students from working class backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, or poor backgrounds or students who were the first in their families to go to college and so didn't have a set of parents who were kind of eager to swoop in and tell them how to handle things or, or just handle it outright for them. And I thought, this is really important. This is um, a juxtaposition because we tend to think of first-gen, poor, and working-class students as being less prepared for college than their counterparts. It was really quite fascinating. Right. Um, it, to your question, though, which was, are, were, were students able to acquire those skills along the way? You know, I think the answer is yes. It depended on the student. So that's interesting that, um, that you were kind of able to pick up on the nuance of this issue as being kind of influenced by class or even socioeconomic status. Was this something that you noticed in the moment while you were dealing with the students or kind of when you were looking at it more retrospectively for your book or for the TED Talk? If a student was coming to office hours, they had a question or a concern or a problem, a conundrum. And so I was able to observe in the moment how they articulated the problem. The students who were more self-reliant were able to say, I've had this happen or I've done this here are my options, here's what I'm considering, what do you think? Right. As opposed to, oh no, what do I do, without having given much thought to it. it so like yeah, I noticed kind of it a, in the moment. Kind of a disparity in the sense of direction. I think it was a disparity in the sense of whose problem is this, mm-hmm. or whose choice is this, whose opportunity is this. And did you find that in the cases with students who seem to rely on their parents more, that there was a sense of self-awareness that they that they realized that they were relying on their parents more than their peers or that it was something extraordinary? Or was that sort of a just de facto sort of default for them? I think it was a de facto default for them. I think they felt, uh, this is my norm. This may be the norm of my friends. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Nikhil, what concerned me probably the most because you when you're an older person critiquing a set of behaviors in the younger generation you have to be self-aware enough to say well this is the oldest thing and you know humans have always complained about the younger generation sure so am i just complaining because they're different or do i have a legitimate concern here and um the biggest concern frankly for me was the students who were very reliant upon their parents to register them for class, still Mm -hmm. edit their papers. They didn't mind that their parents were this involved in their lives. Mm -hmm. And what I came to appreciate was we have always taken for granted in psychological terms that children grow up, rebel against or differentiate, to use a softer term, from their parents and become their own human being. You go from being literally cared for in someone else's body to being held by them and fed by them and sheltered by them. But at some point you become this freestanding human Mm -hmm. who can do those things for themselves and maybe even raise the next generation. And so my fear was if these 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds are not only not differentiating themselves from their parents, they're they're very attached. What's going to happen to us as a human species or at a smaller level as an American society, if these young who, if they don't know how to stand on their own two feet with confidence, what bewilders me is, okay, so what has changed such that it seems to be particularly terrifying for this generation to make their way toward this next stage of life that all humans make their way toward? Is it that the world is objectively more challenging, more complex, harder to navigate? 
etc or is it that we've done something by way of raising these millennials such that they are less prepared than their parents might have been at the same age to to conduct themselves the way the world expects an adult to conduct themselves you said and certainly that's a bit of the premise at the heart of my book how to raise an adult it's in doing too much for our kids we have managed to not teach them to do for themselves um so kind of zooming back into the frame of reference with students one phrase that we hear even more and more now especially coming out of stanford is the term duck syndrome oh yeah so um why why don't you run us through that a little bit tell me about maybe your own observations yeah this is not new at stanford when i was there in the 80s they talked about it and it certainly uh became discussed more and more frequently in the years that I was Dean. So the duck syndrome is the notion that at a place like Stanford, the students appear to be floating merrily along, serene, chill, cute, you know, just sort of this tiny little lovely thing making their way. And as with a duck sitting on the surface of the water, you can't see how hard they're working, how hard their feet are paddling. And implicit in that is the notion that students are choosing to keep that effort, that stress of the hard work under the surplies that you're not allowed to show you're working hard, you're not allowed to show that you're struggling. That's the, that's the interesting switch. Uh, and, and that I think has then really led to an explosion of, of mental health and wellness challenges. And so I guess from my own personal context, you know, having been a student for four years at Gunn High School and, you know, going through my entire, you know, young adult education in the ecosystem of Palo Alto, something that I've, that I've been looking back on and realizing that I kind of lived through was the conversion of kind of academic excellence and manufacturing a resume and being well prepared for college into a type of social capital. You, what you're touching on, you know, the, the reaction that people have in this kind of ecosystem to those who act out and those who question it definitely relates to, I think, the concept of social capital. Because when, say, you leave Gunn and you enroll in middle college for junior year and or senior year, you know, people, that sort of is swept under the rug in a social setting. I, you know, I know because there were students who, who it you know, quote unquote, it happened to, but students who kind of woke up and took that choice for themselves is what I'm seeing now. I guess from your perspective, are there any things that you would want to ask me? You know, just to flip the script, you know, I'm, I'm what, three years removed from this ecosystem. Um, any, any questions that you have? What would you tell parents if you were allowed to come back to gun and, or maybe even eighth grade graduation from the various Palo Alto junior highs, if you were able to have an audience with parents, what would you advise parents to do to be most supportive and helpful? So I think one common theme that comes up is the theme of sacrifice. You know, there this me coming from, you know, a mixed immigrant mentality where one parent was born in the States, one parent came here, they all went through crazy challenges to get where our family is right now. You know, my mom was a woman in STEM. She was born in the States. My dad had to you know, pass all the bars to get a scholarship to come to the U.S. from India and study. Um, you know, had to bust his butt to make it, right? So there's the concept of, oh, we are giving up a lot so that you can come and take advantage of all the things that this environment has to offer. So there's a concept of sacrifice. I would say, you know, whether it's financial or, you know, the sacrifice of autonomy that parents are kind of giving up. They're saying like, oh, we're going to commute 
an hour every day just so that we can live here and go to the school. There are hard sacrifices, and I think one of those is something that parents don't really want to talk about, that the concept of social capital with students that we were talking about, that all really exists at the parent level. You know, parent, there are parents who are like, oh, you can't go study this, you can't go there, what will people say? You know, in my own community, in the Indian community, this is especially prominent. I know it exists everywhere else. And it's hard to combat that because, you know, this is the ugly truth, but my parents have given up a substantial amount of social capital because now, you know, by, by allowing me to choose where I wanted to go to college, um, because I was, I was looking at schools with bigger names, you know, like a place like Carnegie Mellon or a place like, you know, every, of course, everyone in Silicon Valley knows about these schools. Wesleyan, Haverford, Williams, what are, what are these places, right? Going back to the sacrifice, the sacrifice that my parents made and are making is that whenever someone asks them, oh, what's your son doing? What's he studying? Where's he going? They have to say, oh, he's going this place. Where is that? What is that? Huh? I've never heard of that. If you have to explain it, it can't be much good, right? This gets manifested in so many ways, whether it's, oh, you have to go do these activities. What will people say? Oh, you have to only apply to these schools. What will people say? Oh, you have to study these things. What will people say? You know, they have their like one liner of, oh, my son's studying medicine at Harvard, or oh, my daughter's studying physics at MIT. You don't really need to explain anything beyond that, right? People give a certain amount of street cred or social cred. When you say, when you, you know, insert these name brand institutions and kind of check all the boxes and that, you know, kind of taking parents' egos down and having them kind of appreciate their kids and represent their kids as people, not labels, right? Yeah. That is a sacrifice that parents need to learn how to make. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the theme of sacrifice just keeps coming up over and over as you try and unpack this whole theme of overparenting and parental anxiety and things like that. I think when you add in the immigrant experience, that just adds an entire new dimension mm -hmm. of it because in many cases there are individuals sacrificing family in order to go and try and make it out for themselves. Yeah. And in, in, in those cases, like you're you're obviously making a sacrifice you're, mm -hmm. give, you're giving up you know a part of yourself by not living in the same place yeah. that you and your family have lived for, mm -hmm. for so long yeah. theoretically and when it you know even if it comes down to like parents who've kind of been in the states for a while when you're when you have a kid you're giving up a lot of your life in the mm -hmm. hopes you know in the short run i mean you're basically trying to create something that is a reflection of yourself mm -hmm. in in, yeah. in many ways yeah. and that that's, that's and I why think a lot of times a better version of yourself is precisely precisely which is why a lot of times you hear the theme of parents being like oh this is what i went through so you're going to go through it as well or mm -hmm. this is a mistake i made that i don't want you to make mm -hmm. and a lot of times that ties yeah. in or the, this is what i went through and it was really challenging mm -hmm. and i don't want you to have to go that through as it. well that as well and, yeah. that, and parents drawing on their own past that's something that comes up again and again looking when you put kids with that come from different backgrounds in the same setting they're with, with kind of more or less the same expectations that are being presented to them by systems or institutional systems mm -hmm. of power, like the college board or yeah. things like that. Yeah. They're all going to have different reactions to it. And their different reactions are going to elicit some, you know, panic mode responses when you see like your friends that have different parents than you doing different things. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Every, everyone yeah. wants to have the best information. Everyone wants to, you know, do the best they can. But when you see people coming from such different backgrounds that are held to very different expectations at home, right. there's sort of a dissonance. Mm -hmm. And dissonance kind of breeds this type of tension. Another interesting point that the cultural conversation brings into it, you know, we're talking about socioeconomic dynamics mm -hmm. in this whole equation. 
um, is that, you know, there are cultural differences between people that whose ancestors came from different places. And mm-hmm. when you're being raised in a, you know, a multicultural environment that obviously, you know, imparts you know, maybe slightly different values than the people that you interact with on a day to day basis. And as far as, you know, monetary things like socioeconomic status, a lot of these cultural shifts or cultural values can also reflect the level of investment that parents put in their child's education. Mm-hmm. Like for me, at least the the high school I went to was super varied, you know, as homogenous as people paint Silicon Valley, like there's a huge immigrant presence mm-hmm. and yeah. that immigrant presence isn't even necessarily, you know, unilaterally well off. There are cases where, you know, there are kids whose parents are working to keep a restaurant open, but are also, you know, slaving away to to pay for that kid's SAT tutoring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that course tutoring are things that we generally associate with well-off, super rich, well-educated people. When in reality, like in, in this example, you know, there are people from all all walks of life, kind of all, yeah. all sides of the spectrum yeah. that are trying to, you know, achieve the same common goal. Like they're right. trying to work in the same framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that like you used the term ecosystem, which I really mm-hmm. thought was mm-hmm. apt I think in a certain ecosystem it's hard to see oh maybe I don't need this SAT tutoring because everyone else is doing it so it's like of course I'm going to work yeah. really hard so yeah. that my kid can have that yeah yeah Even, and it yeah. definitely ties into uh, the idea of like having a safety net which you know as Im- immigrant families come into the states and don't really have the safety net whereas if your family's been in this country for you know however however decades or however hundreds of years or whatever yeah. you know that like oh it's okay like i'll be fine you know there's a sort of assurance and security that comes with you know being part of that kind of legacy mm-hmm. whereas transplant families as i like to call them or like immigrant families yeah are sort of establishing that from the ground up. I feel like that has a lot to do with the conversation about like generational wealth mm-hmm. and how it's been like restricted to only like the yeah. upper class, the upper yeah, white class yeah. of America. And you know, everyone wants to talk about affirmative action and stuff like that. Like that's a hot topic now, but mm, the yeah. thing people don't touch very often is legacy admissions. Actually affirmative action for more often than not white people, that's but also so people mm-hmm. that have been in the States for much longer. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sad thing is that you can usually tie back to monetary incentives mm-hmm. where, you know, they're donors Definitely. and they're, you know, yeah. boards have accountability to the, do- you know, yeah. to, to the people that are providing money to these institutions. Mm-hmm. Completely. All right, so yeah, we talked a little bit about Melissa earlier. Um, so I think, yeah, we'll just go right into it. Here she is, all right. So since I've been at Wesleyan for a little over two years, I've spent a lot of time unpacking and kind of deconstructing the way that I was raised. Part of that is because for the first time, I saw more than two people who were raised in a similar, you know, if you call it Middle Eastern household. And I had never really seen that many who were like me. And I really got to see the, the similarities that were kind of present within Middle Eastern parenting, you know, focus on academics, focus on, you know, respect and family and kind of the weird juxtaposition that you live in, living in the U.S., but also being from the Middle East. Um, my mom and my dad made sure that I grew up in a Turkish household, uh, even when I was super young. Any America that kind of laid on my shoulders was hung up at the door. You know, we spoke Turkish at home and only Turkish. Um, we had Turkish cable. We ate Turkish food. And I think that was really a very important decision on my mom and my dad's part to make sure that I didn't forget where I was from and that I wouldn't forget what they went through to make sure that we were here because for both of my parents, the goal was to make sure that I went to college, even from before I was born. 
was to make sure that their family, whoever was in it, was able to get the opportunities of education that they weren't able to get in Turkey. And so that came with a lot of decisions made on how I was going to be raised. And part of that was in a very strict kind of traditional fashion where for one family comes above all. Um, the most important thing that I learned was respect. Respect for myself, respect for my parents, respect for my culture, and respect for my family. Um, and that came with like very weird ways of kind of enforcing that. So in elementary, middle, and even in high school, you know, I wasn't allowed to sleep over my friend's house, which seems fairly arbitrary and not that important. But at that age, it's really important to you to be able to kind of fit in with your friends and do all the things that your friends are doing. And when I would ask my mom why I couldn't sleep over my friend's house, even for their birthday, she would say, oh yeah, it's part of our culture. You know, I wasn't allowed to do it when I was your age, so you won't be allowed to do it. And I didn't quite get it. Um, my mom basically used that excuse as a way to kind of hiding her fears. You know, as much as she trusted my friends and as much as she trusted my friend's parents, I think she, she shared a fear that I think most of her also immigrant friends also shared that you know, you never know what's going on in the world and you never feel more safe than with your child at your house with you. And there were other things, especially in high school, when I wanted to go out with friends, I wanted to go to half apps, or if I wanted to go to the movies, that was something that she never really asked for as a kid, partly because when she was growing up, she had a lot of domestic kind of responsibilities of helping her mom out with her siblings. Um, and so she never really had, you know, that whole leisure or time that I had, I guess. And she would always put it back to like, you know, this is part of our culture. This is part of the way that I intend on raising you. You know, um, family comes first, academics also come first. And so you're not gonna be allowed to do these things. Um, I remember I wanted, I really wanted the Sweet 16 because I really wanted the dress. All I cared about was the dress. My mom absolutely flat out refused. And that was like the most strict interpretation of this is literally not part of our culture. You know, Sweet 16s are not for you, they're American. And my mom spent a lot of time just really criticizing American culture. To the say, she'll still say that Americans just want to have fun. And that's not something that she agrees with. I think my mom is, you know, she has every right reason to, to focus on the future and to focus on doing work now. So then maybe in the future you will be okay. And she doesn't understand alcohol culture. She doesn't understand the way that Americans party and the kind of this more laissez-faire kind of relaxed attitude towards life because my mom has gone through so much and she can't really imagine a life that isn't of suffering, which is really upsetting. But it's also, you know, she was raised in a poor working class family. I was raised in a relatively poor working class family. And so she doesn't really get it. And after my dad passed away when I was six, my mom also had to assume the role of my father, which meant for one, being good cop, but also being breadwinner and and all these roles that kind of were equally shared between them. The biggest barrier was that she didn't speak much English, so I assumed some of them. So we ended up becoming these these two matriarchs in a sense, me at six and her at you know whatever age she was. And it was weird because sometimes I would describe our relationship as more as friends than as or sisters than as mother and daughter because we were sharing so many responsibilities together. And it was really weird because there were times where we were making decisions together and then the second I needed, you know, that independence and I was already an independent kid to begin with, um, it would be like straight down, like, no, you can't do that. Like you can't go out or you can't watch TV for the X amount of hours or like you need to go and study. And I think I think most of the reason why she was so strict on me was because I I had to make sure that I was doing well in school. 
Um, you know, they both came here to make sure I went to college and my mom wasn't about to give up on the fact that I was going to go to college. So, um, that meant I would be doing test books all the time. Um, I remember my, I think, what was it? My 17th birthday present was like a Kaplan set for the SAT. My mom spared no expense, even though we were not well off at all to make sure that I had books. And I think that all of the fears that she had. So uh, when I first got my iPod, my mom would make me put it away for several hours at a time just to make sure that I would do my homework. That was out of the fear that I would get distracted and wouldn't do my homework. Um, I thought it was ridiculous. The times when I had to be home, I couldn't stay after for the musical because my mom wanted to make sure I had enough time to sleep so then I could actually focus during the day. Even, you know, until I was a junior in high school, my like my sleep time was 10 o'clock. Like my mom and I would fight nearly every night because I was up at 10.30 and all of these things were completely valid in her head, but since I didn't quite understand what was going on, I always fought with her about it, you know, go to bed after 10, you know, let me go to bed at 11, at 12, um, why do I need to put my phone away? Um, why can't I have a boyfriend? That was like a big thing. My mom threatened to send me to Turkish boarding school when she found out I was dating someone in, uh, in high school. It's not part of our culture. Conversation happened again, but it was also because she was fearful that I would get distracted. And a lot of the things that she did was because she didn't know how to handle it. And she didn't know, like, I, I guess because like part of it, she didn't know how headstrong I was, but she was also scared that one mistake I could make could affect my entire life. And so I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. And the second I kind of retaliated against that, it just became stricter and stricter. Now that I'm here, you know, at Wes and right now studying abroad, I've kind of realized how appreciated I am that my mom didn't let me do a lot of things because it kind of shaped the way that I am and the way that I kind of hold myself in this world, that I know what to focus on. And I know that my focus is education and I know that my focus is medical school. And that sounds incredibly boring and whatever, but I've understood what's important in life and that is family. And that is, you know, using the excuse, you know, it's not part of our culture actually served me right because now I appreciate my culture and I appreciate the reason why I wasn't allowed to go out or, you know, I had to dress, you know, a semi-modest way and I didn't quite get it when I was at that age. You know, I think as a little story, you know, when, uh, when I was in elementary school and uh, middle school, the trend was to have like miniskirts, like little floral miniskirts. And my mom would make me wear tights underneath them. And I didn't get it. And it was infuriating because I had to wear tights underneath them and nobody else to had. And I had the leggings with a little lace trim and that would just infuriate me. And now I get it. Um, my mom made sure above all that I spoke Turkish. And I have never been so appreciative of something in my life because I've been able to connect with my culture in a way that I would not have been able to had I not been able to speak Turkish. And these are like little things that drove me absolutely crazy as a kid. You know, my mom and I, especially this summer, you know, we've unpacked a lot of this together. And I told her kind of the shit that I did as a kid that, you know, in some families would be absolutely nothing, but for my mom was the worst. And I think it's, we laugh at it because my mom was like, you know, I didn't realize how bad I was, like how, how much I didn't let you do things. And, you know, I was like, yeah, like you didn't, but like, I get why. And I completely appreciate it and I understand it. And we kind of just laughed like the really stupid ways in which I tried to like stick it to my mom. Um, I think, uh, and I just like brought up shit that she said to me that was like really ridiculous, but at the end of the day made a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think there's 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 a lot more to Middle Eastern parenting than just like being strict. I think a lot of it has this inherent fear that you want the best for your child and you kind of want to make sure that you can control what that best is. And sometimes that means being a little harsh and being very strict, but it's out of love and it's out of compassion and it's out of just hoping for the best. 
and sometimes that comes off the wrong way but you know now i know that even if my mom does ridiculous things now it's coming from the best intentions it's coming from a place where she really wants to make sure that i'm safe and that i'm okay there are a lot of things there that really resonated with me. I think particularly the part where Melissa's talking about not being able to sleep over her friend's house, like growing mm -hmm. up in elementary school and middle school. That was totally a thing with me as well. Like my parents just thought it was the oddest thing that my friends wanted to come over yeah. and that I wanted to go over. They were just like, no, like that's just not gonna happen. Like you, yeah. this is your house, like you're sleeping here. Like, yeah. Also kind of the dichotomy between American culture versus our culture, whatever yeah. our might mean in that scenario yeah. where like the moment you step in your your home's doors like you're now held to a slightly different standard Completely. of mm -hmm. conduct and rules and stuff yeah. and I think at least in my experience this was something I could kind of relate to with Melissa's dialogue that I've been unpacking that for a while with my parents and kind mm -hmm. of talking about yeah. like that we'd be like oh what did you think about this while that was happening because mm -hmm. you know in the moment it's kind of hard to have these meta conversations totally. when you're so caught up yeah. in the heat of it and for me I think what I noticed was by the end kind of by senior year of high school we'd reached sort of a medium, mm. some some type yeah. of, comp we didn't call it a compromise, but it was some type of mutual understanding and respect where my parents kind of understood that I'd learned kind of like the critical parts of what they wanted to teach mm. me. And yeah. also in return had kind of given me a bit more freedom yeah. as long as I was honest with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. I feel like, yeah, it's it wasn't so much like a compromise, but I think it's like a relationship that developed over time. Like we had yeah. like a better understanding as, like yeah. a, the older that I got. Mm -hmm. And that's only gotten better with, with age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of it, M Melissa talks about some of it stemming from her mom's fears. And I think like as your kid grows up and maybe you feel less fearful for them, mm. you're yeah. Yeah. more willing to compromise things that you didn't feel you could compromise earlier. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Unwind the line. This podcast is produced by me, Ali Fam. Our technical support comes from the one and only Red Feather Studios. Woo! Big, big thanks to Ben Saldage. Music in this podcast was produced by Jonah Preston. And our theme song was produced by Isaac Price Slade. And if you enjoyed either of their musical performances on this episode, then you can find more information and more of their music um, on some links on our website. If you like our podcast, honestly, it would be bomb if you could write us a review on iTunes. Uh-huh. If you have something to say to us. Say it to our email. Unwindthelinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website if you're bored and want more episode information or if you want to buy some pretty sweet hand-printed tote bags. Unwindtheline.podbean.com If you're still listening at this point when the episode is really over, you should... Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> our Instagram handle is... Unwind the line.